Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Another day here broadcasting live from the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention in Kansas City, Missouri. Happy to have you along for the conversation today on AOA, Agriculture of America. Great to uh, be here with you as well as uh, we have another uh, awesome show lined up talking agriculture here today. In just a second, we're going to talk with the CEO of the National Sorghum Producers, Tim Lust. He will be joining us in a moment. Also coming up at segment two, we're going to get an update on the Mississippi River and infrastructure, transportation, and more. Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition will be with us here in Kansas City. Coming up at the bottom of the hour in segment three, we're going to sit down with Brian Jennings and Ron Lamberti from the American Coalition for Ethanol. Get some updates on E15, E85, and much more from those two gentlemen and then also at the end of the show we're going to talk with the chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council Stan Bourne so uh, definitely a, a great lineup here on today's AOA. The show brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesels like Cenex Roadmaster XL and Cenex Ruby Fieldmaster everyday products powered locally by Cenex. You can find your nearest Cenex location right around the corner or online at Cenex.com. All right, let's kick things off here today on the show. Joining me now, he is the CEO of the National Sorghum Producers. Tim Lust is with us. Tim, it's great to have you back on the show and uh, great to see you in person. Hope you're doing well. Good to be with you, Jesse. Let's talk Farm Bill and uh, catch up on some of the latest headlines there. We got a one-year extension of the 2018 Farm Bill now with uh, this continuing resolution to uh, keep the government funded. Your thoughts on a, on a one-year extension, the, the talk and the sound from the leaders of the House and Senate Ag Committees, they said they, they welcome this to at least have some certainty. They're still committed to the five-year, a new five-year Farm Bill. What's your take on getting a one-year extension, Tim? Well, I, I think that it was just practically where, where we were at. Uh, obviously mm -hmm. need it to, to be able to allow the process to go forward without chaos. Uh, but by the same token, you know, I think it's really been uh, heavily about, uh, you know, where, where are additional dollars for, for a safety net for Title I? What does that look like? Um, and, and, you know, what can be done uh, there to be able to put together a long-term bill that can get support um, in both the House and the Senate and, and really, you know, Democrats and Republicans. It's mm -hmm. uh, something that uh, you have to look at the big picture in these. Obviously, uh, there have been farm bills that have been very smooth and gone through pretty fast. There have been a number of farm bills in the past that have certainly taken a couple of years to get through the process. So not totally unprecedented, uh, but, uh, you know, we'll continue to be able to focus now, I think, really on what it looks like in 2024. Uh, of course, that's an election year, mm -hmm. so um, you've got a limited window uh, on the front end there, and, and then, frankly, you get into uh, – time period where it's just very tough to pass anything and do anything is uh, going into an election. So, um, you know, that's that'll make it a little bit more interesting. But again, not the first farm bill that's fallen into that process either. So, um, you know, looking forward to going through and uh, moving forward in the process. Chairwoman Stabenow has uh, come out here this past week and made the comment she feels like there's a lack of urgency among farm groups and agriculture to uh, push more to get a five-year farm bill done. Do you feel like there's a lack of urgency out there to get a five-year farm bill done, Tim? No, I, I think when you don't have a safety net that is very viable, I think there's a, a desire to, to go forward in the process. I mm -hmm. think with that being said, um, certainly there's challenges. Uh, there's challenges from farm groups like ours that say, I have resources. There's There's got to be resources to be able mm -hmm. to look at making some improvements in that safety net. Um, and that's been hard. Uh, certainly just the process. Um, um, you know, CBO scores for, for committee staff trying to, to look at different options uh, for a farm bill have been very hard to get. So, um, you know, some of those things, um, you know, everybody wants it to be quick. Everybody wants it to be simple. Rarely is it quick. Rarely mm -hmm. is it simple. So, um, you know, I think it uh, is, is one of those that we can jump in here in 24, and I think everybody will be looking forward to 
to moving the process. I kind of have a little better feel now with with where things are. And, and you mentioned, you know, kind of updating those reference prices and a lot of uh, a lot of commodity groups, especially the sorghum producers, I know that that's something you guys want to see in this farm bill. We're using old data at this point. I mean, when they did the 2018 farm bill, you know, they were using data from before that. So it, it, it's we're long overdue to get some of these baselines and reference prices, et cetera, updated in this farm bill, aren't we? Yeah, and certainly we're one of those commodities that, um, you know, very pleased with what was done in the uh, 18 farm bill that, sure. that allowed reference prices to go up if market prices were up. And we're one of those commodities that we'll, we'll see that kick in. We'll, we'll see our reference price go up mm -hmm. over the next several years um, because of that formula. But even then, uh, when we just look at cost of production increases, um, you know, still still pretty challenging, uh, still just a lot of risk that is being assumed. And certainly, um, you know, that kind of leads into disaster. And uh, we, we've, we've been in this discussion where we seeming are having a disaster bill and a disaster discussion every year. Um, and I think just politically, um, that gets tougher and tougher to do. And uh, so I think, you know, looking at what can be done from a policy standpoint to provide some of that protection, if, if we can't get an update mm -hmm. in Title I, mm -hmm. um, you know, how do, we, how do we proactively look at dealing with a disaster situation instead of just reacting every year uh, and, and going through that process? So, again, uh, easy things to talk about one-on-one -on -one with you here in this booth. Um, yeah. Uh, really tough to figure out how you come up with the resources and the policy language that can get broad approval uh, to get across the finish line. It is tough. We know it's always a heavy lift, and we'll hope that this uh, farm bill can get done and, and folks are happy with it here as we get into 2024. I should ask you about uh, this year's sorghum harvest and just uh, some other issues uh, with sorghum producers, uh, things that are top of mind for you. How did we wrap things up here in this uh, 2023 growing season and uh, what are we excited about and looking forward to as we move into 24? Well, I think it, it you know, location made a big difference. So a uh, mm -hmm. record, record crop uh, in South Texas uh, to start off our marketing year this year and uh, record yields and record crop down there and just a really good crop and all, all went immediately to the port and immediately to export uh, right at harvest. So was very excited the 1st of July. I thought we might break a national yield record, and then it never rained again uh, throughout the, the rest of the plains and, and particularly Kansas. Uh, so, you know, ended up the national a little below national average yield this year, uh, substantially better than a year ago where we had a very significant drought, but uh, still a little bit below average crop. Uh, market demand is, is very strong. China continues to pull. Uh, so seeing good movement uh, in terms of grain supplies and, and shipments in terms of that, which has, you know, brought prices back up again uh, above corn. And, and so looking at, mm -hmm. at a good price and, and going into that export market today. And, of course, domestic ethanol plants continue to pull hard as well to make sure they get, get those bushels in their trade territories. Well, I know uh, folks, of course, can stay up to date with all the things you guys are doing uh, policy-wise and more. Uh, sorghumgrowers.com. I'm sure they can find a lot of information there, can't they, Tim? Absolutely. Well, Tim, we do appreciate the uh, time here at the NAFB Convention in Kansas City. Thank you for joining us and uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you down the road. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right, coming up next here on AOA, brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. We'll talk with Mike Steenhook from the Soy Transportation Coalition on the way right after this. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Take control of your legacy with Uncommon Farms. Their ag business professionals can help your farm take on challenges in the five key areas of financials, human resources, strategic planning, management, and succession planning. From their nine subject matter specific peer groups, full service accounting offerings, crop insurance experts, and more, Uncommon Farms is the resource your farm needs to succeed into the future. Visit UncommonFarms.com today to learn more about their service and software offerings that will propel your farm into the future. 
Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. We are the nation's largest integrated healthcare system, providing life-changing care to over 9 million veterans. Our hands are busy, competent, skilled, healing, helping, and friendly. A place where diverse teams come together hand in hand to provide full patient-centered care. Working in state-of-the-art facilities with influential leaders in healthcare, all with a single goal in mind, to help veterans heal, recover, and get their lives back in a place where everyone plays a part and where your efforts are truly appreciated. A place so innovative and forward-thinking that we're rebuilding hands and where even robots lend a hand. Join hands with us. Learn more at vacareers.va.gov. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Find your everyday products powered locally at your nearest Cenex location. You can find it as well. If you don't know where it is, online, Cenex.com. We continue here from the NAFB convention in Kansas City, Missouri today. Joining me now, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, Mike Steenhook is with us. Mike, good to see you. And Casey, how are you? I'm doing fine, Jesse. It's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. we got some things to talk about on the infrastructure front, transportation, and more. Um, Mississippi River has been the big talking point. I know we saw river levels come back up somewhat, uh, then kind of start to go back down a little bit. It's kind of a seesaw, it feels like, here the last couple of weeks, just with where we've gotten precipitation and where we haven't. What's kind of the latest you're seeing uh, as far as transportation and barges on the Mississippi? Yeah, I mean, we've we've had some pretty delightful weather uh, the last couple of weeks as far as for farmers to be able to finish harvest and you know, simply just being outside. But what hasn't happened is needed precipitation to, number one, help recharge the, the ground, but then you know, also importantly is to be able to provide more sustainable river levels for the Mississippi and the other tributaries. So what we've seen again after this, you know, uptick that we had a few weeks ago, we're we're back down below where we were at this time last year, which was a low water event. And you know, the forecast is not that optimistic and providing some additional rainfall. And again, with you have when you have such dehydrated soils like we have, any kind of rainfall that does occur will largely be absorbed into the ground. Not a whole lot of residual moisture to get into those streams and those rivers. So unfortunately the problem is going to be pretty stubbornly persistent mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well how as far as the barge traffic are we still seeing big limits on on the barge traffic uh, in certain sections of the river right now we are you know they, they we continue to see about a 25 percent reduction in the amount of freight per barge okay and so when you look at it you know you could easily get fifty-five thousand bushels of soybeans in an individual barge so a 25 percent reduction is pretty substantial and then also limiting the number of barges that you attached together because the problem really manifests itself into one a less deep channel which means you have to light load number two a more narrow channel which means you can't have as many barges together to form one single unit and those two things carrying capacity of barges the ability to put them together 
is what really drives the economics of barge transportation. And unfortunately, that's being reduced. Where's the most impact we're seeing on the river right now? Is it kind of that St. Louis, Cairo to, to Memphis stretch? Is it the lower Mississippi down towards the Gulf? Or is it the entire, you know, Mississippi system? Yeah, you really kind of see it, you know, one it starts kind of at, at St. Louis, because that's when you, you don't have locks and dams to help, you know, moderate the, the, the shipping channel depth. Yeah. But then, yeah, yes, it, down to, to Cairo, and then uh, that's when the Ohio River intersects with the Mississippi, so you get some additional flow there. But then, you know, Memphis on south, there's a lot of pockets where sediment builds up. Uh, you have to really attack it with dredges. Um, so obviously, it's, it still remains that challenge. Really, you know, once you get south of St. Louis, it's, it's pretty problematic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have seen uh, soybean export sales start to pick up, though, a little bit, thankfully, here. I know it's kind of catching us up to that big pace we set last year. China has been stepping in and buying, uh, and it seems like we're, we're able to utilize not only the Gulf, but I know the PNW, we've been getting some, uh, some shipments out of there as well. So that that's at least a good sign to see that even with the river level being low in the Mississippi, we're able to use some of our other avenues to, to move grain. Yeah. I think it's important to keep that as a, a big picture perspective that we have made investments over the years in, you know, not putting all of our eggs in one basket, yeah. just the river or just rail. We've, we've spread those eggs out. You can always do a better job. And that's something that we endeavor mm -hmm. to do. But the fact that we've got uh, a pretty well-established freight rail industry with all of its inadequacies. Sure. Uh, being able to be able to step up to the plate and be able to absorb more to get to the Pacific Northwest, which is which is our number two export region after the Mississippi Gulf. 25% of soybean exports leave from the Pacific Northwest. So that's really key. And it just really underscores the point of having redundancy and resiliency and diversity of two-year supply chain. You brought up rail. Uh, just real quick there before we talk about a few other investments that have been made. Um, I feel like I haven't heard of a lot of challenges. I know rail still has its challenges and some delays, but compared to what we were seeing here last year, I feel like rail, like you said, it's kind of stepped up to the plate here this year. Yeah, they have. And, you know, they've been, their message has been, hey, we're open for business. You know, there has been a softening to the, the broader economy. Agricultural exports have had some headwinds uh, over the last year or plus. Um, and they have available capacity. So they've, there has been some of this modal diversion away from the river to rail. And the fact that they're able to accommodate that has been very beneficial to us. Some of the other avenues that we use uh, outside of uh, the Gulf and the PNW uh, that we talk about quite a bit and, and even rail to like Houston, for instance, too, I know is another big avenue. But we have the St. Lawrence Seaway. We did have a, a brief strike of workers, but that thankfully got resolved quickly. Uh, so we have that avenue. And I also know, too, a new announcement here just recently at the Port of Milwaukee's. So talk about that a little bit as we expand some of our other options, Mike. Yeah, you know, the, the, the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway, it only accommodates like 1% of soybean exports, so that it'll never rival the Mississippi Gulf or the Pacific Northwest. But we think that that slice of the pie chart can actually get bigger, and it should get bigger. And so we're actually looking to increase that diversity of our supply chain. And the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway, we think it could be a, a more viable option for us. So the Soy Transportation Coalition actually made a, a $200,000 investment in a, a, a new phase two of a, a current export terminal at the Port of Milwaukee, owned and operated by the DeLong Company. They currently have a facility that was opened in July that exports DDGs. Phase two is going to be able to export soybeans and soybean meal, and that's when we got really engaged in it provided that $200,000 funding. And then they actually just recently received a $9.3 million grant from the U.S. Maritime Administration to enhance their storage capacity there. So it's a great example of the federal government, a private entity with the DeLong Company, a Port Authority, Port Milwaukee, and soybean farmers all coming together to really enhance the agricultural supply chain so that we need more examples of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're talking with Mike Steenhook from the Soy Transportation Coalition. Uh, other things on your mind in terms of transportation infrastructure, what are some things that our farmers just need to think about and keep in mind here as we near the end of the year, Mike? Yeah, you know, we we you know obviously focus a lot on diversity of the supply chain, but one of the things that's a really major part of our DNA is yes, we want more investment in our supply chain, but we also want to make the taxpayer dollar stretch further and promote cost-saving opportunities to maintain our infrastructure, like you know, an initiative we have related to rural bridges. In mm -hmm. Working with counties to be able to replace their bridges for a fraction of the cost without actually 
compromising safety in any way. You know, it's great we've got some additional investment coming from the federal government, uh, that Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that was passed a couple of years ago. That's all good. But my crystal ball suggests that with looming you know, debt lo loads that we're having, yeah. the federal government and state government, they're not going to be able to continue to write checks to fulfill all of our transportation goals and needs. So we've got to actually practice better stewardship as well. Well, and to that point, I mean, we already have a fair amount of our rural roads and bridges that, I mean, you know, I grew up in, in rural north central Iowa and I see it when, when I'm home. I mean some of this infrastructure that it, it really it's at a point now where it needs to be updated and fixed yeah and the and the and the the tax base to support it is actually shrinking yeah and then the need is increasing and the fact is you know with modern agriculture you know you've got we're producing more some of these you know trucks and machineries um you know when that infrastructure was built with these bridges they didn't have modern agriculture in yeah. mind and so that's really kind of the inherent tension there. And so we've actually got to, you know, find ways to improve it, but do so, do so by practicing some good stewardship as well and making the taxpayer dollar stretch further. Sure. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think, too, it just overall, the the changes and how things keep evolving in modern agriculture, and even with the soybean industry as well. I mean, you mentioned it, we're producing more. We're seeing the expansion of soy crush and things like that. I feel like we're going to have a lot more movement of, of big truckloads of soybeans around the countryside. So making sure our infrastructure is uh, up to snuff, I think, is so, so important, Mike. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just, again, it's not just a function of growing what people demand and having demand for it. You have to connect yeah. the two. And that's what our multimodal transportation system does. It connects supply with demand. And I, I'd say as well um, here before we run out of time, thankfully, uh, outside of the water levels, um, like we mentioned, and we've had some challenges the last couple of years, uh, but things seem to be doing okay, fingers crossed here, as we near uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas season. Yeah, you know, people, the old adage is you don't notice the road until you encounter a pothole. Well, we've had a number of literal and figurative potholes over the last several years when it comes to our supply chain. So farmers really, and others are, are increasingly understanding you, you can't just get supply right. You can't just get demand right. You have to get transportation right. Well, I know folks can reach out to, and with questions and or see uh, all the great work you guys are doing, soytransportation.org. We've been talking with Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition here in Kansas City at NAFB. Mike, great to see you. Thanks for the time. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you soon. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you. Good to be with you. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. All right, coming up next here on AOA, we'll have a conversation with Brian Jennings and Ron Lamberti from American Coalition for Ethanol. We're going to talk E15, E85, infrastructure, and more. That's coming up next here on AOA, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Back with more right after this. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the latest episode of The Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We'll discuss the latest topics surrounding the corn industry, the relationships between corn and other parts of the agricultural supply chain, the newest initiatives and partnerships from NCGA's Market Development Action Team, and much more. That's the first Wednesday of every month for The Monthly Grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and medical expenses are covered. If you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over 60, call 24-7. 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risfet with this market update. Grains are mixed but mostly lower this morning. Beans are down about 10 or 11 cents. Corn is off about 4 or 5 cents, while wheat is off anywhere from 4 to 10 cents. China crushed just 1.69 million metric tons of soybeans last week. That's down from 1.71 million the previous week. That's bringing year-to-date crush to 81.5 million metric tons. That's up nearly 6.2 million, or 8.2% from last year's pace. 
Soy meal stocks are rising, suggesting that meal demand is even slower than the current crush pace due to some hog liquidation over disease concerns. The slower demand does come at a time when inbound shipments are ramping up. That's coming from both Brazil and from the United States. That should be expected to build up supplies and eventually curb imports of beans other than the building reserves. Soybean imports currently total 84 million metric tons year to date. That's up 10.8 million or 14.7% from last year's pace. Beans are down hard this morning. However, the European model has pulled back on rainfall totals expected for dry areas of the center-west Brazil. Widespread soaking rains are still expected. However, we will have to see if those actually verify. Commodity Weather Group anticipates that 75% of Brazil's soybean belt will receive a half an inch to up to two inches of rainfall over the next five days or so, locally even up to five inches in some areas. More rains will be coming in the six to ten day period as well. The best rain days in the next uh, week to 10 days currently look to be Monday, Tuesday, and then Friday and Saturday of next week. Now, Sunday night's weather reports and forecast updates are expected to provide some guidance for trade next week. The VIX is trading near 14 once again today. While the Dow is off and crude oil prices are more than 2% higher, while the dollar is leaking lower. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Times of transition, whether from a sad event or a joyful one, can leave us feeling adrift. Social connections are an important part of a healthy life. Being isolated and lonely can be harmful to your health. It can lead to high blood pressure, a greater risk of heart disease, and early onset dementia. So it's important to build and maintain connections to people, not just in your family, but others whose relationships bring meaning to your life. Trying a new hobby, volunteering, exercising, even using your phone or other device to stay in touch with others. All these can be great ways to keep up your social connections and your physical and mental well-being. Visit connecttoeffect.org to see if you're at risk of social isolation and find ways to get connected. Presented by AARP Foundation with support from United Healthcare. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And we continue our coverage here from the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention in Kansas City, Missouri on AOA. Brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, a diesel that doesn't mess around. And joining me now, Brian Jennings and Ron Lamberti from the American Coalition for Ethanol. And uh, gentlemen, good to sit down and have a conversation with you here in person. How are you? Great to see you, Jesse. We're good. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. Good to be down here and see all these folks. Yeah, it's, talk to. it's like a it's like a family reunion in a way, and you guys yeah. get to come for trade talk and enjoy it, and and tell the story of ethanol and, and have conversations with so many folks uh, throughout uh, the farm broadcasting world and agriculture. So I know it's always a yeah. always a great time. Let's uh, let's talk ethanol a little bit. Uh, a lot of things going on. Brian, I know you and I have talked quite a bit here in the last few months, um, E15 and some of the policy issues that are going on and legislation and more. Give us a little bit of an update. Let's just start there. Some of the things going on with E15 right now. Yeah. Unfortunately for your listeners, we're still trying to overcome this E15 uh, issue that we've been talking about for some time, Jesse. But I think there's kind of a two-part update for you and your listeners right now. The first is the regulatory approach that we've been pursuing um, with EPA uh, in the Midwest states is, is really at a point where we're simply waiting on, on the agency to finally act. You know, Iowa Governor Reynolds and others took the initiative to demonstrate to EPA allowing E15 in their, their Midwest states will reduce evaporative emissions, which is exactly why that reed vapor pressure regulation is in place in the first place. Um, EPA proposed, after all, to allow them, uh, these states, to do it uh, starting in 2024, which was a year later than what we would have wanted. But the catch is EPA hasn't finalized this darn rule, and it's high time that they do it. And the longer they wait, the more uh, sort of credibility it, it creeps into the naysayers who say, well, we can't, we, we can't possibly do this in time for the 2024 summer driving season. So we need EPA and the Biden administration to quit stalling and to act sooner rather than later. 
the second approach or the second update on E15 then is I believe, Jesse, we are closer than ever before on moving forward with bipartisan, bicameral legislation, which would fix this issue to allow E15 year-round, not just in eight Midwest states, but in the entire mm-hmm. country on a permanent basis. Our champions in Congress are really beginning, I think, to pick up some traction. We're at a point where we, we need to find a vehicle, right? Uh, a sure. must-pass bill between now and the end of the year, and there are limited opportunities for that, but working hard on that as well. Well, when I think about this, and Ron, we can have your perspective here, you know, trying to get some certainty on E15. We could throw E85 into this discussion as well as far as our our fuel stations, our gas stations, having the right equipment and the costs associated with that and some of that uncertainty can be a, a detriment and a setback to getting that available in more locations, can it? Yeah, and as Brian was talking about that, my thought was immediately, you know, that's what one of the hangups that we have with stations not wanting to go ahead and invest if they have to or, or to make the conversion to offering E15 because there's this procedure that they would have to go through every June 1st and September 15th where they would have to change the fuel out or cut off that fuel at the pump. And it's just not something that they ever have to do with any other fuel. And it's it's not a fuel that's that different. I mean, it's one that's legal and has been tested in, you know, 98% of the vehicles out there. It's under warranty for probably 80% of the ones that are out there. If they still have a warranty, it's probably more like 99%. But it is one of those, it's, it's a major roadblock to stations wanting to do E15. And I mean, while most of them could do E15 with their existing equipment, there is this uh, higher blends infrastructure incentive program that USDA has that would reimburse station owners um, if they own less than 10 stations up to 75% of the cost of new equipment for handling anything that's above 10% ethanol. So that would work for E15, it would work for E85. But I mean, really the E15 equipment is the same stuff they would buy if they were selling E10 or E0. So that money's out there. Um, there was 500 million of it allocated in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Mm-hmm. There's five quarters in a row here where there's 90 million per, and they put 50 million on some past applications for a similar program or identical program, really. But there's all those opportunities. And then on top of that, you've got E85, which where marketers are selling that, and there's actually still more marketers selling E85 right now than there are E15. Wow. But the ones that are selling it are doing very well with it. And I always point to Pearson Fuels because they're the best example of San Diego, California. 10, 11 years ago, they were selling probably 300 to 500,000 gallons. Um, of E85 this last year, they, I, they it's either last year or they'll this year hit 100 million gallons, 100 million. And it's basically because of pricing, because they know how to handle the RINs. They've gotten some funding for some of the stations, but some of them they haven't. It's just a good bargain um, with low carbon fuel standard credits. And they're aggressively marketing this stuff. And even by aggressively marketing it in a place where you're paying five or six gallons, mm-hmm. there's five or six bucks a gallon. They're selling it for three, three and a half in that town, in that city. So the marketers are making a really healthy margin. So are the wholesalers and the consumers are saving a ton. And, and that's available, I think, all across the country. Um, I just drove my, my flex fuel hybrid that we made, I guess, Mm-hmm. Out to D.C. and back, didn't have any problems getting the 85. And it was mostly, there were a couple of places where the price was, you know, they were high riding a little bit, getting a little more margin than they sure. probably should. But I didn't have any problem getting it. So it's, it's out there. There's still 20 million or so flex-fueled vehicles out there. Um, if they'd allow us to convert vehicles using the, you know, the, like the kit I used on mine, which is an eflexfuel.com conversion kit. I mean, there's no telling how much we do. And that would, you know, Anybody who's seriously concerned about the environment, um, that really seriously reduces the emissions. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of a, you know, all of this stuff fits together. But E15, the, to the original question, E15 being legal year-round would take that one thing off of yeah. a lot of uh, marketers' plates, the, the hesitation that they have. So 
either way they get it done, it would be great to get it done. And I, I think as well, and I know we talk about this a lot, a lot of folks in, in farming and, and in agriculture understand and know the importance of ethanol to, you know, the corn markets, et cetera. They, they know the benefits and the environmental benefits. Consumers know, but also there could be a little more, I think, awareness out there to the benefits of higher blends of ethanol. And what would you say to consumers who still may not be aware? They might just blindly go to the pump and grab the handle, put it in their car, and, and move on. I mean, what would you guys both say to that as we try to get more awareness out there? I'll go first because then Brian can be more positive than me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of cynical after working in the convenience store industry for 35 years. I wish they cared. Um, you know, uh, oil companies have spent most of their advertising, if they advertise, is on premium. And yet premium still doesn't sell very much. I, I think people look for the low price, which is fortunate because we're usually the low price. Um, I wish they cared more about, you know, carbon intensity and, and the environment. And I just, I remember the very first, I've been at ACE now for 23 years, very spe first speech I gave, there was this article that was going around where it said, in survey after survey, Americans say they will pay a little extra for a cleaner fuel. And my response, I said, so what that means to me after working in the convenience store industry most of my adult life is that in survey after survey, Americans lie. Because they just go for the, the cheapest stuff. And like I said, the good news is we're still the least expensive. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, what my wish would be that the people who make policy who just want to, you know, close their eyes and ears and not ever, you know, utter the word um, corn ethanol would take a look at the real numbers and see that this is as good, if not better, way to reduce carbon and carbon pollution than electric vehicles are right now. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that consumers are going to like. I mean, they want something that's going to get them from here to there no matter what. Yep. And I think, you know, like a, a flex fuel hybrid is a perfect way to do that because part of the time it runs on battery, which was charged by a cleaner fuel. And the rest of the time, if it gets cold, you still have fuel in your tank that'll get you from here to there. Um, we just found out, I've just found out by having a group from Latin America tour with us that Toyota's starting to sell. This next year, they offer a battery, uh, a, a flex fuel hybrid in Brazil. So interesting. Be good to see how those sell because that's what we've been trying. That's a message we've been trying to get across. And um, I don't, I, I don't think Toyota finally said, "Hey, look what these guys said. Let's do that." I think they've been working on it all along. Mm -hmm. But now it's mm -hmm. now we can say, "Hey, look what these guys are doing in Brazil." Sure. And maybe get back into that place where we're on even footing with all these electric vehicles. Yeah. Brian, what would you say to all that to kind of wrap up our conversation here today? You know, Ron really opened my eyes to this because when I started in the industry, I sort of assumed that consumers really did care about the fuel they use, and, and some do. And so it's not to paint everyone that's a consumer with a broad brush. We know that there are some consumers that care about E85 or E15 because of the economic benefit or the environmental benefit, but the vast majority of people purchasing fuel at the pump want to pay the least amount. And in that respect, our consumer is really the marketers. It's those that are selling. It's the folks on the front lines, right, sure. that are selling E85 and E15. And that's why our work, and specifically Ron's work with them, to demonstrate the math of ethanol, to demonstrate the blending value of E15 and E85, and how offering a lower cost fuel will bring more customers to their station. And guess what? When they fill up on E15, they're going inside and they're buying you know, water bottles and a six-pack of beer and snacks and all those other things that they really make money on. So ethanol can help them get a competitive edge by offering that lower-cost fuel. Good thoughts. Ron Lamberti, Brian Jennings with the American Coalition for Ethanol. Great to see you both here in Kansas City. Thanks for joining me, and I know we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. All right, coming up next here on AOA, brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil here from the NAFB Convention of Kansas City. We're going to talk with the chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, Stan Bourne, on the way right after this. Being blind doesn't always look how others may think. Stargard disease was supposed to define me. Retinitis pigmentosa aimed to overwhelm my family. It tried to cut me down. 
A blinding eye disease attempted to force me away from doing what I was born to do. But it cannot stop me. I have the tools. I will keep moving forward. Pushing past the limits of this disability. I know where to find support and where I can be seen. Great vision doesn't require great sight. Innovative research, educational resources, supportive community. The Foundation Fighting Blindness is leading the charge in finding treatments and cures for blinding diseases. Make your impact today. Donate now at fightingblindness.org. A public service message from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Hi, I'm news correspondent Bob Woodruff. In 2006, a roadside bomb struck the armored vehicle I was riding in while reporting from Iraq. I sustained a life-threatening traumatic brain injury. The military term, got your six, means I have your back. And that day, our service members had mine. During my recovery, I learned firsthand the challenges facing our service members who return home with injuries. While serving, their fellow service members always had their six. Now that they're home, it is our turn. We started the Bob Woodruff Foundation to make sure that the camaraderie and support they relied on in the military carries on, and we need you. Please join us as part of the Got Your Six initiative and help us be there for impacted veteran service members and their families. They've had our backs. It's time we have theirs. Learn more at gotyoursix.org. That's gotyoursix.org. Using the number six. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Dave Kaiser, a South Dakota farmer and trustee for the CHS Foundation, about recent news related to CHS's support of FFA. Dave, why is FFA important to CHS, the CHS Foundation, and the cooperative system? CHS and the cooperative system and every other ag company needs talented people. In fact, the future of agriculture depends on the next generation of leaders. The CHS Foundation has long been a supporter of FFA because it is the number one organization dedicated to developing those next leaders. Well, tell us about the new commitment CHS and the CHS Foundation is making to FFA and how it will be used. The CHS Foundation has made a commitment to provide nearly $4.3 million to National FFA over the next three years. This is the largest gift in CHS Foundation's 75-year history. This gift will support FFA and its programs in four ways. We are helping to fund FFA programs in 17 states. It will provide scholarships so FFA members can attend conferences and contests. It helps the Workforce Development Program, which introduces students to ag careers. And the gift will support the National Association of Ag Educators, which helps recruit and retain ag teachers and build strong teaching programs. Dave, how will future ag leaders benefit from those programs? They'll be exposed to valuable information about agriculture and cooperatives with plenty of hands-on learning experiences. They'll learn from FFA advisors and ag teachers and from each other through robust and engaging programs. And they'll be able to explore careers and build their skills by participating in supervised ag experience programs. That's Dave Kaiser, a trustee for the CHS Foundation, joining us on Around the Table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. 
And welcome back to AOA here today, live from the NAFP convention in Kansas City, Missouri, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, a diesel that doesn't mess around. Joining us now here on the program, pleased to have him with us, the chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Stan Bourne is here today. Stan, great to have you on AOA. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Jesse. Doing uh, doing quite well. And wow, what a conference this is. Uh, first first uh, time attender, so it's uh, interesting to see uh, how busy it uh, it is with, uh, with all our media friends. Yeah, you uh, get to talk to a lot of farm broadcast folks here over the course of a day and uh, have a lot of conversations about what is going on with the U.S. soy industry, and uh, I'm glad we could find a few minutes of time to talk. Let's uh, let's discuss some of the things going on right now. I know you told me you just recently got back from China. We hear a lot about China and buying U.S. soybeans and soy products and more and more. So talk about some of the things you did uh, here recently in China, and let's just start there with our conversation. Yeah, so we did just get back uh, last Friday from uh, almost two weeks in China, and it was a it was a great venue. It was actually there were eleven different agricultural uh, commodity groups uh, that uh, went together in force uh, to go engage with uh, both government leaders as well as customers in China. And our objective was to demonstrate the commitment that we have to the Chinese market, and uh, the timing of that couldn't have been better uh, because of uh, what's been going on with uh, you know at the government level uh, with relationships that are happening. But the thing that I came away with, Jesse, from uh, that engagement, I've been to China twice this year. I've been there several times in the past few years. The uh, uh, tone of the meetings that we had was so positive and so welcoming. And I really began to understand, uh, you know, their focus on food security for their people. 1.3 billion people in China got to eat, you know, so that uh, things stay uh, stable and positive. And uh, we're a key component of of their... um, food security and contribute to that positively. So, you know, there's a lot of things with China that uh, go on. Uh, when you got two superpowers, there's going to be things we don't agree in that we don't like that each other do. Uh, that's natural. But in the case of agriculture, it's not one of those conflict areas. It's an area where we collaborate, uh, work together. We uh, produce an excess of food. They have a food deficit. Uh, so there's an opportunity to trade there for both our mutual benefit. As far as the China relationship, I know a lot of folks have talked about how they've been going more to South America for soy and soy products. Are you you concerned about some of that opening of the relationship and maybe South America overtaking the U.S. at the top of China's list, or are you not necessarily worried about that? Well, so first thing, we have to recognize that Brazil is the largest producer of soy in the world. Yep. And uh, they definitely uh, have more ability to produce uh, an expanded capacity than we do because they got more land. They've got land that they can convert. Now, there's some downsides with that. That's another whole subject. But the uh, point is they have the ability to provide volume. What we have the ability to do is, is provide a very predictable supply and a very... Uh, high quality product and it's really interesting like if you look at uh, when they go to store stuff uh, for the long haul they recognize there's a fundamental difference between soybeans that are grown in a four season climate and soybeans that are grown in uh, a tropical climate the ones from the u.s in the four seasons just keep better they're higher quality they last longer that's what goes into the reserves and they're always going to have that so yeah we're going to fight with uh, brazil to uh, earn our uh, earn our place but i'm not worried about uh, mm-hmm. having uh, opportunities for uh, u.s soy to go and help people's nutritional uh, uh, to people's nutritional benefits all right <laughs> let's let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit something else you were telling me about that i think is interesting finding other opportunities for u.s soy Aquaculture, mm. feed and fish, as you kind of put it to me, and I think this is something that maybe uh, a lot of folks outside the industry don't know about. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, I had to learn this myself. Uh, I wasn't aware of it, and I'm really excited about this opportunity. And the reason is because if if your focus is on getting nutrition into people's uh, into communities. 
fish are a great way to do it because their feed conversion ratio, when you feed them a, a, a kilocalorie of feed to get that turned into flesh, there's no more efficient uh, method than with fish. And so uh, it's, uh, it's a very effective and efficient way. It's also uh, very cost effective, you know, for people to be able to access and to buy. So it's a, it's a great way to get more protein into uh, uh, areas where they don't have a lot of food dollar to, to spend and uh, a, a very uh, productive way. Uh, and it's about 10% of all the soy that we produce is going into aquaculture market, either fin fish or even crustaceans. I mean, you know, they mm-hmm. grow them to, to uh, they're growing shrimp and prawns and that kind of stuff uh, with, with soy. And the feed inclusion rate, they can, depending on the species, they can use up to 40% of soy in the feed ration. So it's a great opportunity, great growth opportunity for us, great for the people that consume it. Uh, it's, a, it's a win all around. Talk to me real quick as well about the sustainability in, in the U.S. soy industry and some of the things we're doing there. I know that's another hot topic throughout the industry. Yeah, sustainability certainly is. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate in the U.S. soy industry that we had some visionary leaders about 10 years ago that laid down the gauntlet on uh, making sure that we had a sustainable solution to tell people. And thanks to the the uh, public-private partnership we have through the, the USDA and the Farm Bill, you know, we've got structure and rigor in place that and auditing that allows us to have a uh, very um, look in the mirror and be confident and solve the sustainable uh, protocol, if you will. And so we have the SSAP, the Soy Sustainability Assurance Protocol. It's basically a, a, a certification that goes with a shipment. 60% of everything we're sending into an export market goes with that SSAP uh, certificate. So it's being very well received in, in countries. And it's not just places like Europe. A lot of places that are growing food and shipping it to places that develop countries like Europe that are very sensitive to this are, are buying it. So Southeast Asia, China, etc. cetera. Uh, so again, 60% of everything that uh, is going into export market is getting that cert. And it's transferable all the way down from uh, us as uh, producers all the way down to the retail level. Definitely, definitely. Stan, uh, it was great to sit down and have a conversation with you here for a few minutes during the NAFB convention, and I'm sure we will uh, talk again real soon, but I will let you go and uh, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jazzy. All right, we're out of time here on AOA today, brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Have a great rest of your day. Take control of your legacy with Uncommon Farms. Their ag business professionals can help your farm take on challenges in the five key areas of financials, human resources, strategic planning, management, and succession planning. From their nine subject matter specific peer groups, full service accounting offerings, crop insurance experts, and more, Uncommon Farms is the resource your farm needs to succeed into the future. Visit UncommonFarms.com today to learn more about their service and software offerings that will propel your farm into the future. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Foreclosure protection services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, call foreclosure protection services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. Call foreclosure protection services now at 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Children are the greatest joy and our best hope for a better future. Friends, they are the future. But did you know that millions of kids right here in our own backyard are facing hunger every day? Without healthy food, it's harder to grow, to thrive, to feel their best. The impact when children don't have enough to eat is tremendous because when you're hungry and your basic needs aren't being met, you cannot learn. Every child deserves to be fed. This is a problem we know how to solve. Food is not just food. It's energy, health, confidence, hope, and even love. Yes, love. Breakfast in the classroom contributes to kids being more focused, which leads to higher grades, and simply just their well-being. Thank you! Learn more about how No Kid Hungry is helping end child hunger in America at HelpNoKidHungry.org